Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is uh, part two of a two-part discussion with uh, John and Matt and myself, Paul Axton. And we're still following Douglas Campbell's outline here in his description then of the law of sin and death, though this we veer a bit from Campbell, but hope you enjoy this second part of this two-part discussion. And I want Matt to weigh in because he's got most of David Bentley Hart's books. I hear that he's got a hardcover, maybe even a leather-bound version of David Bentley Hart's New Testament. Yeah, and actually I, I, uh, I, I do, in fact, have a, a leather-bound of course, I do all this underlining and taking notes and all this stuff. So I'm like, I can't just like, you know, get rid of this book. And so I may be the only person in the world that has a leather bound, you know, copy of the New Testament, you know, that, that says it right there. David Bentley Hart wrote big one. It's fine. But I did find, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I am an unabashed, you know, nerd. You know, my favorite joke is, oh, we finally figured out who wrote it. Yeah, that's right. That's what's, that's what's funny. Because they were supposed to put, you know, <laughs> translation. So it looks really funny on the spine of my book because it says the New Testament, and then it just says David Bentley Hart. It's supposed to say, you know, a translation. I mean, it's got a, it's got an about the author on the back book jacket of mine. You know, David <laughs> Bentley Hart may be an inspired writer, but he's not that. I've been reading through the Brothers Karamatha, um, Dostoevsky's awesome book. And Father Zosima has this has this great quote where he's talking about love. And Father Zosima in the book is sort of, um, you know, Dostoevsky's archetypical, you know, church father. He's got all this, you know, wisdom. He's the abbot at the monastery and he's, um, he's just full of wisdom. But he talks about love and he has this great quote where he says, Love all of creation, the whole of it, and every grain of sand. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in all things. <laughs> it's like, it's awesome. And so once we have said what we said about life and love, we can sort of move the conversation maybe then back to Paul and to talk mm-hmm. about the resurrection, right? Uh, and we've already been saying it, but Paul, is there anything else that you want to say about how death and resurrection and those categories in St. Paul's theology, how those how death and resurrection fits in. Let me go back. Is there undifferentiated desire? Can we differentiate the desire that we're talking about that is linked in Romans 7, 7 to sin and the desire for God? Or to state it in psychoanalytic terms, in you know, a French understanding, that there is this uh, in a Lacanian understanding Jouissance is a kind of desire, but Lacan says jouissance is evil. But in the end, in a Lacanian framework, in a Zizakian or in in that framework, Mm -hmm. there's really no way to get from this evil desire, this thing that is death drive itself, that has a grip on us, that we would just consume in order to obtain. In other words, that's the desire, this consumptive desire that is death-dealing in the experience. Is there a way of, of differentiating? And I think there has to be. Not to say that there isn't desire for God, but we need to be able to talk about that in a different way. 
And it's interesting that between Romans 7, where Paul uses the language of desire, that that language is for the most part dropped. In other words, he's only going to reference desire when he's referencing back to what he was saying in Romans 7. That the link between what we are doing, you know, the relationship that we have to God in Christ is no longer characterized by what we might call this evil desire or this jouissance or this thing that is lacking, but it is then characterized as a real-world participation. I don't think, you know, if we're just using the ordinary language of desire, we might still describe that as a, a fulfillment of desire, but of course it's a very different thing. There's a reorientation that takes place in this resurrection life. It is no longer that we go panting after life where it is absent, but in the reorientation that Paul is describing in chapter 6, you know, he, he'll use the perverse language, shall we sin that grace may abound? Is the law sin? He's wanting to say there's this perverse thing that has a grip on us, and we've got to separate that out. We've got to recognize that's a different order of experience. And I think this resurrection life that he addresses, it's there in six, but it's there most fulsomely in chapter eight. The way, again, I think it's the language of hope, that hope is simultaneously the obtaining of the thing that we hope for, not in its fullness, in other words, there is a kind of realization, this is the, the thing I was talking about last time, that, that we begin to actually inhabit history. You know, to inhabit a story means that we recognize the dynamic unfolding of the story. I think the Jusant's kind of desire is a desire for the story to, to end, to, to get rid of the dynamism. Well, to say that in one way, that is death. In other words, that's what you were describing. You wanted to die. And in a sense, that's not a difference from the pleasure. The, the pleasure and the pain are mixed in a masochistic death-dealing desire. But I think what happens when we begin to occupy this dynamism of time and story and resurrection life is that the obtaining then is not an obtaining of an immediate, absolute, ecstatic, holistic now, but we're willing then to participate and to grow. And of course, inherent in that, not to say that suffering is good or a necessity, Paul introduces a different order of suffering in chapter 8 where in chapter 7, the suffering linked to a kind of negative desire, that's the kind that would cause us to want to kill ourselves. That's the God rescue me, who will rescue me from this body of death, that it is the, the put the gun in the mouth kind of desire that in some way I want to get this thing over with. There's suffering in chapter 8, but it's all a, a kind of suffering that is put upon us. It's no longer this agonistic struggle that just consumes us and defines us. 
it's terrible, you know, the, the suffering of even up to and including martyrdom, Paul says. But Paul is describing then resurrection life as a capacity then to experience this suffering, not as a primary order of experience, but in some way we can endure that because that's no longer definitive of us. Yeah, well, I mean, thanks be to God, God's not a Frenchman, right? No, I didn't get a laugh. No, no disrespect to any of our French listeners, you know, but it was, oh, <laughs> it was a great joke. Uh, and I'm also laughing at myself for imagining that you have a billboard in your office. John, John, he's in Texas. Board, Everything's but... big in Texas. No. Uh, that's right. I mean, John has, got, has an enormous office. <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, a part of that, uh, I like what you're saying in one sense, but I think that the language of the Christian tradition is that resurrection life is being in love with God, unrestrictedly being in love with God, and that what we hope for is a re reality, a new reality that allows us to have union with God in a way that we're not able to right now, which just actually makes me think of... Um, a conversation that we've sort of had among friends. I think that Hart at least is saying that in the in the language in Romans there that you're referencing, Sar well, and First Corinthians, right? Sarks and um, flesh and body, soma, body of death, that he has a little bit of a different take on what those words mean for Paul. What what do you could you weigh in on that, Matt? I can, but I wanted can we just pump the brakes for a second? I want to affirm what Paul is saying about desire, but John, I knew that you would have a little bit of a different take on it. And I, and I think that I want to hear more about how you would counterbalance what Paul is saying. I think that's interesting. And it made me think of John one. The first thing that John says, in, or that Jesus says in John's gospel is what do you seek? The first thing that he says in John's, you know, wonderful gospel is like, what do you mm -hmm. want? Right? What do you seek? What are you after? What do you desire? James K. Smith says it like, you know, what do you love? I think what do you love would be a good way of phrasing it. Yeah, yeah. And the disciples, and it's really cool how the disciples ask. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus says to them, come and you'll see. It's a profound thing that I think that John mm -hmm. is starting his gospel with there, right? And it's pertinent to this discussion. Because what I want to ask you, I guess, in part is, is Whenever I was out there living like that, and well, I can ask both of you because it, it's, it pertains. It's like, so on the one hand, like I would say that Paul would say, well, Matt, when you were out there, you had an orientation to, to death, you know, you were killing yourself, which is true. But John, wouldn't you want to kind of nuance that and say that I was also maybe after something else? Well, I would just say, I mean, there's nothing there, right? Like what I would, the caution, I think, that is all the way throughout the Christian tradition mm -hmm. is to not in some way evacuate creation from its inherent goodness because it, it exists, because God loves it. It's hard to say, well, all that is is an orientation to death. There's a lot of things that we might love, and when we love finite things unrestrictedly, or when we posit one good above another, this is how we do evil. See, I want to take what Paul is saying very seriously in the sense that, yeah, that's definitely a different orientation than unrestrictedly loving God. But it's not as if we cease to love. Right. You know, it, it doesn't look like love because what we're loving is bad for us. It's perverse. So I think I want to take on as much language as Paul's using uh, as possible, but say that, you know, we never check out 
in a, in a sense. Like the most checked out, we, we, we might use that language like popularly. We're still human beings that are sourced and have our final end in God. We never escape that. And that's what Hart's quote's getting to that I read a few minutes ago. That the idea of the gnomic will is that we would choose or we would discern what is good and bad for us. We would discern what is good and evil. And that itself is characteristic of sin. And Paul was even just saying that. That's how Genesis 3 works into this. But just because that is an aspect of who we are, that's an unreality. And we never cease to be people who have a natural will to our supernatural end, which is God himself. That's, I mean, I think that's actually the definition of the word concupiscence that we have these disordered loves that would pervert and um, deprive our lives of the glory of God, which is a fully alive human being uh, on the order of Jesus Christ. I think like you have to hold all that intention in my thought. Otherwise, I think you just have to jettison most of the Christian tradition and the way that it speaks about this issue. One of the ways that you might be able to think about what Jesus is saying there in John, though, and what I'm getting at is that he might as well be saying, you know, what do you desire? On the one hand, you know, these are maybe people like us. Well, right, they are. They're, they're guys like us. I mean, they're, you know, they're Jewish and they're following after God and, you know, God himself is like talking to them. It's, it's amazing when you think about it, right? So on the one hand, they have the same orientation that Paul has been describing, right? With the, They have an orientation to the law and... Uh, they have these same sort of problems that we have or whatever mm-hmm. else. And by the way, if, if memory serves, um, I'm almost positive that this is how John's gospel closes out. It's interesting to me because he's saying like, well, what is it that you really desire? And my point in all that is saying is that when I was out there getting high and doing all those things, and it's just not me, right? It's millions of people, right? It's, like, it's not just getting high. It's anything. It's any type of sort of existence outside of God. I think that, John, what I'm hearing you say, though, is, uh, and, and, and I don't know if this is Thomas, or, but I think it might be Hart, you know, at least, saying that what we really desire is God. Mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentally, that fundamentally, that our natural will, um, that, we're, that we're created in that way, we're created for that end, right? That, that, that with that end in mind, it's like that is the impetus of our desire, is that what we really want is God. What we really desire is God. But does that, and I use this, overuse this word, but does that, does that like militate against what Paul's saying? It shouldn't. I want to hold those two things yeah. in tension. Yeah. I don't think that it's has to be mutually exclusive. I mean, this is why I brought up the Lonergan's notion of bias as sin, because with that understanding, you can sort of agree to um, what Paul is saying on a psychoanalytic level. And how, but I think what it does is it fleshes out how that relates to everything else that Paul is already saying it relates to uh, in a really clear way. So it's to say, well, yeah, we, we would desire God. And see, the thing is with this, you can't, if, you, if you're going to reject this notion, you're rejecting a traditional sense of God as primary cause and end of all things. And that's been the way that Christians have understood theosis to work. So not to say that there couldn't be another way of thinking about what salvation is, but that's been the primary metaphor, both East and West throughout most of the church, right? Maybe you could exclude some forms of Protestantism. I don't know. Um, But that's what's at risk by saying, oh, no, we don't actually have a natural will desiring God, because that's a part of that much larger system. But so if we say that and then say, well, because of sin or because of death, you could say we have all of these biases at play, which would 
reorient ourselves to ourselves and uh, to other human beings and to the world, both as individuals and as groups in such a way that what we love then, or what we choose to love would be a way of talking about this. The way our gnomic will is functioning is so perverse that it deals to us a life that could be counted as death. That doesn't then take away from what the ultimate reality of where the cosmos is going and why it exists in the first place. So that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say, is not that I'm disagreeing fully with Paul or anything like that, but that I want to nuance it in ways that the tradition would to try to make sense of how theosis works. Um, Yeah, and so Paul, like, I guess I'm wondering how... Uh, really this conversation has turned into, which is great. And it's been, I think it's been a fun talk. We're, we're beginning to link more and more desire with death in some way, right? We're talking about, and, and I, and I'm, I'm just wondering, so can desire be something like redeemed, right? So that, so that whatever you're describing, can it be redeemed or, or uh, to back to something more of what John was describing or, or, or what would you say? Yeah. Let me, let me make us all more uncomfortable. A thing I always enjoy doing. Uh, What it is that John finds a kind of discomfort with is then my description of this desire that is given over to evil. I I may be describing this, and we need to think of it in two ways. And that is that there is this understanding of desire from a kind of what we might call the the notion of radical evil. Of course, I don't believe in radical evil. That is, that in some way, as John is saying, that there is just this pure evil force devoid of the good. There really isn't such a thing, and and I would agree. But in fact, is there the, the sense in which in the deception which constitutes sin that we do, in fact, imagine ourselves closed right. in and that the desire that resonates in us, you know, really what I'm describing here is a turn to the psychoanalytic literature. You know, it is in Zizek. It is in these atheistic psychoanalytic Marxist theorists that you have this idea of radical evil. And, of course, for them, that's all you've got. But what they're going to say is that this is all we've got and we've need, we need to manipulate it so that out of jouissance there arises something that they would then distinguish as a good desire. I don't, in other words, that's wrong, right? You don't get the good from out of the evil. And I think that may be what John is filling discomfort with, rightly so. And so what I'm describing in part I think is an experiential reality of a deception. That desire may then be consumptive in the way that I described it. Right. But in every aspect of human experience, that as long as there, you know, that mm-hmm. that there is this element. And so I would I want to agree with what John is saying, but I also want to go back and recognize you know i think there is a kind of weakness in somebody like uh, in in the augustinian understanding in which sin is a kind of a portrayed 
as a kind of incapacity of the will, a kind of incapacity for, you know, you would, well, in that case, you would imagine the closer you get to the evil thing, the less power you would feel. Experientially, that's not the way that we encounter evil. When we encounter evil, it's not as an incapacity, whether it's in ourselves or whether it's in other people. It is this real-world force. And so I think we're describing the same thing from two different perspectives. That there is then the goodness that is given over, if you want to call it, a prejudice. What was Lonergan's term? He's using the word bias. Yeah. Bias. In other words, there's a disordering. I think that may be a way of, of getting at it, that you're still having to do with real-world things. There is this reality that we have an experience of that, in fact, can be transformed. You know, think of the woman at the well, that she comes and she's a kind of lusty kind of person, you know. She thirsts. She thirsts for many men and lots of sexual relationships, and she's famous for her thirsts. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you got to stop thirsting, but he redirects the desire, and he depicts it in a different way. And so I think that that gets at the connection between what John is saying and what I'm saying. That is, the woman apart from Christ is just consumed by a desire. The desire is not simply, in a Lacanian frame, pure jouissance that, in fact, it just needs to be redirected, and the source of the fulfillment of it needs to be channeled in the way that Christ does in perhaps the longest conversation in the New Testament between uh, Jesus and the woman at the well. John, uh, is there anything you'd like to add? Like, I like the way Paul brought all this together. I think a further way, I don't have the answers to what I'm about to say, but a further way of exploring that would be to ask about uh, the operation that is being performed by a, an individual when one desires. And of course, in the ancient world, like when you know these texts are being written, there's a very strong connection between desire and knowledge. Well, between love and knowledge, actually. And so this idea then of like, well, is, isn't the opera, operation on the side of the human person probably the same? But until it's converted that mm. in some way we're not even capable of knowing what the problem is necessarily so that we don't understand actually the perversion of of longing after or lusting after a finite object as if we would find the fulfillment of our being in it uh, i think all that's probably happening and that would be interesting to explore more probably at a at a different time I was thinking about what I said because that that thing that John does with what do you seek, and these are the only other two times that I can think of it. If you remember, Jesus asked the same exact question to to his captors, right? They they come to him and they he says, you know, who do you seek, right? It's something like that. And then if you remember the other time, it's to Mary in the garden after Jesus rises there in uh, chapter twenty. He says. Uh, you know, saying these things, she turned back around and sees Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, Madam, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? It's a powerful thing. In other words, the whole thing mm -hmm. seems to be about John. You know, it's a, we could do a whole you know thing on this, but, you know, what's what's it all about? You know, what, 
supposed to be talking about St. Paul. Oh, and yeah, he deals sorry. with it. Yeah, he deals <laughs> but with it. It's there. You know, it's like, what, what's what's existence about? And it, and I think that what we're saying is, is it's about union with God. And so whatever whatever sin is, whatever death is, it's an interruption. It's a it's an obstacle um, mm-hmm. to what we really desire. And so we are. I can, you know, as we started, it's like your desire can certainly get all twisted and disordered to the point where you're literally killing yourself or killing other people or, you know, grasping after that power, thirsting after that power in the same woman, the, the way that the woman was at the well. You know, we just do that same thing with money or anything else. We desire, we thirst after the wrong thing. And it's, of course, death dealing. And it's a black hole. Well, no, I want to, I want you to answer the question I asked you that you're evading. I, what, ask me again. <laughs> I said, so far, Paul, our good friend, has used flesh as, uh, you know, to mean a type of orientation oh. and this body of death to be the culmination of that orientation. Uh-huh. And I said, your favorite author, yeah. the man who wrote the New Testament, uh, says that's not what those words mean. <laughs> I want to hear what you have to say about that. I know I'm, I'm, I'm always a little scared because just because David Bentley Hart's my one of my favorite authors doesn't necessarily mean that I a understand him, um, and, you, you know, right? And I mean, b I would never really want to speak for him, right? Because he would just, you know. Uh, well, I hear there's a glossary in this new book you have. Yeah, like he lists these words. Yes, he does. He does. He and, and Paul could probably weigh in here too, but I think that what. Hart is saying it from what I've read so far in the new book and in his notes of the of the New Testament of which he you know wrote as John just said you know is that actually you know this flesh it, it is you know and remember Hart is a bit of a Neoplatonist here too but he's just saying this is the world of the New Testament that this is what Saint Paul is saying is that this embodied existence in some ways is a sort of a lesser See, I don't want to get the. I don't now want some to get slippage just happened. I don't think he says it's embodied existence, but flesh. Yeah, see, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I don't want to say it the wrong way. So why don't you say? Well, it, I don't know. Have... I don't have the books. I, I, he makes the point, does he not, that flesh doesn't just mean orientation. No, that no. Such that yeah. flesh means flesh, like the stuff we've got, our matter, or material. Uh, but I do think he's careful not to say embodied because that would that's have a... other implications, but. Yeah, terrible. Just like you know, uh, uh, horrific implications uh, for so many different things. But yeah, but what's your? Why, why are you? Why is that question? I mean, well, I, it does kind of flow into the last question. Not that I, I don't want to try to speak. Of, I don't really want to say what I think because I don't know what I think. Um, no, no, I want to hear. That's it. Well, by the way, that really is good because what you're saying is is that well, because Hart is saying, and I do think that Paul is saying it's like, I mean, Hart's just saying flat out. Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the yeah. kingdom of heaven. You know, and uh, so he's saying that in some way that this mortal body, you know, that this perishable body must put on the imperishable, that there really is, you know, going to be a spiritual body that is on a different order than than just this sort of. Yeah, the substance would change. Yeah, exactly. And so so it is actually a nice transition into into our last question about, you know, we have been talking about death as an orientation. And I think that that almost always gets left out right of, of when we talk about death we normally only think about it in terms of the last thing the cessation of your bodily you know functions and things like this but we could keep having that conversation that is what we're always talking about is this well what is sin what is death and, and it's sort of lived reality but 
let's not leave out the, the physical death part of it and what it means for human beings to die, especially in light of the resurrection of Christ. And I do want John to say what he's thinking, even if he doesn't have it all figured out. But we just celebrated, you know, Holy Saturday and Pascha and Holy Week. And so what about Jesus's death and what about physical death? What does it mean in light of the resurrection for, for humans to die? So, um, yeah, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to wade into the whole heart debate thing. But I do think this is important because I would imagine the place where most people are at is that we're such materialists or physicalists in this day and age that if people believe in an afterlife, it's not on any order of this life. That in some ways, a lot of people don't, I think, think anything happens after death or they're just agnostic about it. But this idea that what a human being is, this is really a question about theological anthropology. I think for a lot of folks in this day and age, what a human being is, is material or the physical properties of, of what a human is that we might be able to discover anatomically or... Uh, chemically, and as you know, Christians have never thought that, and so we we should say that very strongly. Like Christians, do not think that all a human being is is flesh and blood, right? So heart is getting at something important. So where do we mm -hmm. go from there? Like what what is Holy Saturday? I mean, actually, Saint Paul seems to make a big a uh, bit about this in the, the Book of Ephesians. In chapter four, I believe, right? So what's happening? And I think there's two ways that Christians tend to look at it. One is the harrowing of hell. And so harrowing there being like Jesus's uh, going into hell as a conqueror. He's already conquered death, even though we don't see the fruit of resurrection yet, right? And so there's a way that this imagery matches up quite nicely with one of the early atonement theories, which would be ransom theory. Jesus has conquered death. Physical death has been conquered. So people like spring up out of their graves. And I got asked a question about that because that was in the lectionary readings not too long ago. And my answer is pretty simple. I just, I don't know what that's about, but uh, I'm happy to affirm it. So we have that aspect. Of course, there's another sense that we have been talking about sort of all along, and this will tie this discussion back into uh, what we have said, that there is a real world aspect or this sense that death is an orientation and resurrected life is an orientation. And that's to think of Jesus's Holy Saturday experience and Jesus's death as standing in solidarity with humanity. So this fits well with uh, one of my favorite theologians, Irenaeus of Lyon, on you know his idea of recapitulation. So the entire experience of humanity has been recapitulated into Jesus Christ, including death. Jesus doesn't die because God needs him to or because he needs to. He dies for us in a very real sense, taking on death, defeating death, showing death to be vanquished and standing with us in death that we might stand with Christ in life. So I think those are two essential parts of the tradition that we want to highlight and that we want to even proclaim, especially at this time of Easter. I think there are ramifications, right? That if we would read Paul and think that, oh, well, all of this is only an orientation, that we could leave out this these two elements or this element of Jesus standing with us in physical death. I, I'm not quite for sure if I can go all the way with heart or not, because he makes a whole bunch of historical claims, right? That I think would be easy to figure out, but aren't <laughs> like about how first century people 
thought about death and the body. Uh, but I do think that we need to affirm strongly this Christian view of a composite human being, where when we talk about soul or spirit, we're not merely talking about something synonymous with our word mind, that we're talking about something more. Death isn't uh, the physical death isn't an end to, to our lives in the sense that some physical processes have stopped. And wasn't it your, uh, John, was it your governor there in Texas who just said, I think it was last week, he said, well, some things are more important than life. <laughs> I don't know. It could have been. Yeah. It, it, it may be unfair. To, it, maybe it wasn't the governor of Texas. Well, the, I mean, the lieutenant governor has long been saying, you know, People were fine with sacrificing themselves for the economy. Yeah. And again, and maybe that's too big of a discussion or a different discussion. But what we're saying, though, is that that's exactly wrong, right? That there is nothing more important than life. There is nothing more precious than life and being in existence, right? So in an odd way, it's almost like by, you know, by willing to make this distinction, right? And even by willing to take on some of what Hart is saying about flesh and blood, and the corruptibility and the mutability of flesh and blood being a hindrance and what that would do to us. Uh, it leads us to emphasize more embodiment rather than less. And I think that would be his defense against that that's some sort of Gnosticism, that he's actually strongly affirming that embodiment is key, but that the substance of our embodiment will change in, you know, in such a way that makes us more substantial. Yeah. I mean, for as much as I like Hart, as soon as someone asks me about him, I just start getting rattled because I just see him staring at me with that look and going, you're getting everything wrong and you're saying the wrong words and you're pronouncing the words wrong and whatever else. So it's easy to get rattled. But have Paul join in here. What does Paul think about all this? That's, that's what, yeah, I know Paul's been in the background. But Paul, Paul, what do you want to say about, you know, what it means for human beings to die, the physicality, you know, the physical sort of death? Well, let's get, let's get straight. Okay. When we talk about Christ's death, that that's something we can do. So clearly, we're not talking about simply physical death, because apparently we can participate in it, and we can enact his death in our life. That crucifixion is not simply a, a historical event or a physical event, but in fact, it's something that we are to take up our cross and follow Christ. And the way that Paul describes this is that I no longer live, the uh, I there, the ego. He's not saying that he's destroying himself like R.R. Reno or the lieutenant governor of Texas for the economy. No, that's the problem. That's the problem of the I. The I is this, you know, this uh, self-destructive uh, thing that right. would imagine that death is, you know, the, the redemption. We need to we need to embrace the economy to be saved. We need to bow down to this idol of, of capitalism. We reify death as if it's salvation. That is a religious principle. It is a psychoanalytic principle. It is a spiritual principle, I believe, that is bound up in Paul's depiction of I. And it's this I that killed Christ. That is, it's this motive force that puts Christ on the cross. It's the same thing. It's the same, if you want to call it, desire, misplaced, misoriented, that kills Christ, but it's killing all of us. Christ enters into this. He undoes this. And this is the significance, at least in part, 
there is a metaphysical reality in this that is undone. So I don't mean to leave that out, but I think we need to be able to describe this thing. We need to be able to say, what does it mean for us that he died? And Paul keeps trying to explain that his death then is the mode, the means to resurrection. There has to be the death of the body in order to get the resurrection of the body. Mm-hmm. So too with us. That's the case with Christ. That's the case with all of us. The thing that dies is clearly not simply people's bodies because that is an orientation that we can take up in baptism, even in the resurrection. Christ is re-embodied. He's there eating fish. He's on the shore. He's doing you know, put your finger here, Thomas. He's doing all of these things that we would call physical or embodied. Certainly there may be, there's a different, body is a different realm. It, it has a, a different mode of, you know, existence, clearly, that it's able to walk through doors, that it's, it's no longer bound in the same way. But nonetheless, there is a continuity between who Christ is. We don't lose ourselves between death and resurrection. That in fact the seed that is planted is the one that is raised. That there is this continuity. And this experience then is one that is immediately available to us. So again, you know, this is uh, the point of Campbell. We really just need to begin with resurrection. And through resurrection begin to interpret the death of Christ. It's because of resurrection that Christ dies in the manner that he does, that he walks into Jerusalem. He's accepting of death. He's going to take this thing on himself. And certainly it's that these people are killing him, and they're killing him to save themselves. That's the impetus of sin. And his resurrection, or even his death, in his death, in the manner of his death, he's already defeating this thing, and they can all feel it. The way that people, powers, the principalities and powers exercise control is through their manipulation of death. That doesn't work with Christ, and it doesn't work with Christ's followers, and that's what it means to live resurrection life. So yeah, we're agreeing with you on all that. I think that's why, so we've said that very strongly. Now, what can you say about Holy Saturday? What can you say about, so can you take the next step forward, like affirming everything that you just said, maybe even as being primary, and say, but it seems like maybe when the Apostle Paul uses this language that it's not just an orientation and... um what does Jesus's actual physical death have to do with this? Not just in terms of, um, you know, a, a turning in the sense of, well, now we know death to be empty. Like what's actually happening? Is, you, is there a place for that? The, those other categories in your theology? Are you thinking of the first Peter passage? Well, uh, I mean, it is in first Peter, but it's also, you know, I mean, Paul's reference to it, or at least what I don't, I hesitate just to say Catholics, but what, I don't know how to phrase it. What Christians have oftentimes claimed, St. Paul is also saying in Ephesians chapter 4, you know, he's taking captive, uh, captivity captive, that sort of idea. The, and I, I mean, I, I'm actually curious about what your thoughts are on David Bentley Hart's point here as well. Uh, could you interplay with some of that? Uh, he's making claims that I, I think he, he 
uh, in fact, is a bit too Neoplatonic. But in other words, I think that there is a real-world continuity. He, wa- he doesn't want to use the word physical, as if we know what that is. I don't know what a physical body is. I don't know what material reality is. And so to imagine that we can shed this thing and imagine the, the resurrected body as in some way spiritual and not physical, I think he's just making category mistakes. I mean, he's claiming to be accurately translating scripture. I know, it's just an interesting question. It is. In other words, flesh may, in fact, just refer to the body, but the problem is not that we're bodies. Yeah. Just in the same way that we can refer to the law, the law's not a problem, the body's not a problem, but the problem is when we take the law or we take the body as an end in and of itself. And so I think where the flesh is describing the sin principle, that is the tendency, that is the orientation that we're describing in the law of sin and death. But it's not that the flesh, you know, oh, I've got this, uh, that the material making up my hand, you know, it's all kind of wrinkly. And that's kind of my problem. But I think your main question is about what happens in the the grave in other words is there is there something taking place i guess i wanted to kind of just quickly interject that i think the big point that's important here is that i think that what's really our threat is non-being right it's like as bad as the orientation that you're describing and as awful as sin is and all those things are true absolutely it's like well yeah but there's then there's that whole problem that there really is an existential threat. So like that skin that's all wrinkly or whatever, it's like, well, you there's at least a chance. I didn't say it was that wrinkly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> super, super duper wrinkly skin that you got, you know. Uh, but, you know what I mean? It's like really that, that's a problem, right? It's like the real existential threat to our being. Of course, it really is in some sense is like death in the sense of non-being, right? Or, you know, I mean, it's corruptible and it wants to be fed. Yeah, well, right, and it's, and, mm-hmm. well, and, and and that the flesh is corruptible in that sense, and I think that what Hart is saying is that there really is a higher order of being that he's calling spiritual, you know, spiritual being that that's incorruptible and it's not subject to that sort of corruptibility, and so therefore mm-hmm. it's a higher, you know, it's a it's a more full. I like the way that John talks about sort of it's like you know more has more being or however you want to think of it. Yeah, more substantial is the title of his essay, and uh, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and it's 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 controversial, it's provocative, but that's just like what he does. But I think it actually makes sense. You know, he's saying that you know that the spiritual is more is more substantial in that sense. It's incorruptible. You know, the whole notion of the harrowing of hell or it's an icon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Anastasis, but it's it's Jesus. You know, he he's he is literally grabbing Adam and Eve. You know, they're they're in a they're in a tomb, and he's grabbing them by their wrists. And he's sort of pulling them up. And in some of the, the icons, there's a the personification of death and he's sort of tied up and there's all these broken, you know, locks for the Jesus is standing on the doors, you know, these sort of trampled down the doors, right? And he's it's interesting that he's not just grabbing Adam and Eve by the hands, but that he is pulling them both up by the wrist. And they're sort of the stain the saints sort of standing by. And so there's the sense that Christ is saving humanity, right? I mean, he's saving Adam and Eve. It's not I, I certainly don't think that whatever it is is some futuristic, but it's that Christ in some way goes into the realm of the dead. I think that you're right. It is the realm of the dead, you know, Hades or whatever. But the point is is that 
Christ in some way that God is is going into the realm of the dead where however you want to think about the spirits that are there in the prisons prison you know whether they're fallen angels whether they're human beings whether they were the faithful whether they you know whoever it is but that that he is overthrowing death in that sense he literally then has not just overcome like an orientation to death which is a big deal but that he's quite literally uh because of the resurrection overthrown just death as a thing god the son went down some we call you know went down i mean we can talk about in spatial terms whatever but he went into death people rose from the dead he rose from the dead it seems as though he overthrew the powers that were that held people captive paul i don't even know if you subscribe to you know the whole notion of the harrowing of hell or of holy saturday do you i think the depiction of hades you know what is this thing what is what is it being depicted here well part of it that that we're dealing with is that hades or the place of the dead or the graveyard or literally the literal place you know where where people are thought i mean for most and i think i can say that that ancestor worship right the the deification or reification of death literally i think is the controlling factor in religious sensibility i think it's there in ancient egypt it's there in uh, religions on a pervasive sense you know it's not it it may not seem to be a necessary part of buddhism but actually strangely enough this ancestor worship then it gets spread where buddhism spreads so you know is hades a literal realm in which uh, the ancestors survive i think that at least the way that i would tend to take it and i'm a little agno in other words i'm this i'm not being dogmatic here but the idea of emptying out that realm is it really is the power that is described in isaiah in several places in chapter 8 and in chapter 28 in which people have made a covenant with death the idolatrous religion that the jews are tending toward that religion that surrounds them in their neighbors it is the graveyard religion it is a where they would go out and offer up incense in the graveyard scenes like i've witnessed in japan you can still go and watch people do this in mexico in japan just all over the world that death is deified and reified i'm very hesitant to talk about this realm in the way that the idolaters want to talk about it as a reality in other words i think that in part it is this power, it is this principle that Christ is defeating. And if we understand that, I think that's enough. John, do you think that's enough? Well, so say it, say it in a positive way, that it's recapitulation, right? We have been, you know, we've given ourselves up over to death and sin and these powers, and Christ has come and recapitulated that into the life of God so that and maybe this is why it is so important to be able to say we can talk about more than an orientation we can actually talk about the transformation of embodied existence because that's ultimately what we're saying if we're going to be like christ right 
that we see that whole thing worked out in Jesus. And yes, we enter into this new reality through baptism, but even Paul uh, is still talking about, you know, we only see through a, um, a, you know, a dim class now. We we only see dimly now what we will see and know more fully in the future, which is just another way of saying like this transformation's not been completed, though it's been actualized. Yeah, I mean, but this is the good news, right, though? I mean, that, that death, whatever it is, that sin, death, the orientation, the evil angels, the archons, whatever, it's like it has all been overthrown and utterly uh, defeated by uh, the, the death, you know, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord. And so that's St. Paul's theology of the resurrection, I think, right, is that the death was formerly king. All the powers and principalities that stood behind that and institutionalized that and made all that happen have been defeated in Christ and that he's now Lord and that death isn't. So that, you know, my hope is that non-being is not uh, a possibility anymore, you know, for any of us. That my hope is that that life is primary, that, it, that, that Christ, that God, the life of God, that uh, the resurrection has sort of canceled out death. Yeah. And I hope that I hope that Doug Campbell doesn't listen to our podcast and think they're just talking about David Bentley Hart. <laughs> we were too afraid to have him on the show. I want you to that's your next task, Matt, is to let's get David Bentley Hart on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm one of your main fans, but I'm afraid to ask you literally anything. <laughs> A great conversation. It's only been like three hours. I mean, come on. Um no, it's been it's been a great talk, and what are we gonna do? What are we gonna talk about next time? A sin. Okay, back to back. You know, happy episode. We're good. Plowshare. Good conversation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at Patreon.com/slash/PaulAxton, or by donating at forgingplowshares.org/slash/donate.